This is God's word. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved through holy through, your, through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Galatians 2. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jewish by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in the Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the work of, works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The word of the Lord. Thank you, James. Will you all join me a moment in, um, as we begin for a word of prayer? God of grace, as we come into this room and sit together from all different places, not knowing, um, not knowing the people around us necessarily, maybe being new, maybe this is our first visit to City Life. And um, we might be sitting here wondering if it was even a mistake to walk in these doors. There's words on the screen, there's things being sung and read that we say, those are just not my words. I can't sing that. I can't say that. But in some way, we find ourselves, we're here. May you convince us that, this morning that from wherever we have come, whether we come embracing the Christian faith, but perhaps it's become very dull over a slow period of three, four, or five years, or whether we come experiencing joy for the first time, maybe ever, in our faith life, or maybe we come and it's a time of sorrow and grief that we're hoping you can bring meaning to. Convince us that this, uh, that we are here 
together in this place for a reason, that you had something to say to us, to do in our lives, perhaps just a tiny little step, one link in a chain of things that you have the bigger picture of, but we don't. Will you convince us of that this morning? Will you speak to us uh, through the grace that says, despite the messes that we'll end up keeping from each other, despite the fact that we, we are more of a mess than we care to admit, you have moved towards us with your love in Jesus. And you have made us more acceptable and more accepted in your presence than we ever imagined. Will you pr- speak to us this morning through that grace? We pray. Amen. When I was in high school, we had a, a teacher, and his name is Doc Bishop. And he had, he had his doctorate. And I think the function of Doc Bishop at our school was sort of an unofficial college prep. And, of course, as high school students, myself, I, there maybe was a crowd I wasn't running with that felt differently about it. But there wasn't a strong appreciation for the, the practicality of, of Doc Bishop's teaching. I look back now fondly on it, but at the time, it felt like this, this kind of dry intellectual uh, kind of intellectual witty kind of humor but you really had to be paying attention because it was so kind of monotone and dry these lectures that at the time it was like this is just doing nothing but it, you know if I knew better it was <laughs> it was a good preparation for college um, and so in perfect form with that kind of that kind of narrative in perfect form when it came time for the senior research paper which you know as a high school student, I knew nothing of this sort. This gigantic, you know, 16-page paper just felt like um, felt like being immediately transported into the grown-up world. Um, and and we get assigned a topic that we can challenge and and try to argue for our own topic. The topic that was given to me was Islamic fundamentalism institutionalized. It was like 1995 or no, 1994. And at the time, I didn't even know what those words meant. That's part of the reason why I remember what the topic was, because it, it was like I had to keep saying it over. What is that? What does that even mean? Can I figure out from those words what that means? Um, and so this is my topic, and I immediately just did the, yeah, right, I'm going to come up with something way more relevant to my life. I'm going to do a giant paper on sports injuries. <laughs> So I argued for that, and that's why I ended up doing this paper on. And little did I know, you know, that my transition into the adult world, really, over the last 15 years, would involve suddenly this this event, you know, that we know now of as as 9/11, and you know, all of the other things going on in the Middle East. And I look back and I go, I really wish that I would have done Islamic <laughs> fundamentalism. Institute. I would have been a genius at all the current events and the things that are happening. Um, in the middle, maybe I would have even saved the world in a, in a lot of respects. I don't know. Um, when when the Apostle Paul writes to this uh, very contemporary issue that's going on in a church, um, and as you maybe caught the sense of it, we're not going to look at all the verses, but you caught the sense of people, kind of these pillars of faith, Peter and Barnabas, who had been going around preaching and teaching and starting new communities around this new message of grace. We're all, it's a level playing field before God because of what Jesus has done. There's not, you know, well, you've done more religious duty and you've done a little less. And it's just in Christ, we are all, you know, equal before God. But now these pillars of this message, Paul is hearing 
that they're creating these divisions again. And because of the kind of Jewish ethos within the early Christian church, they're saying, well, maybe we should promote circumcision again with them. Maybe that should be kind of a, a maybe we should get a little more uh, picky about standards for entrance into this community. And maybe we shouldn't hang out with those other supposedly Christians who don't quite live up to all those standards. So this is going on. Clearly a problem in the church. And Paul does something that looks at first impractical. Paul talks about stuff that seems kind of uh, like, really? There's all this theological jargon and justification and righteousness and crucifixion. Uh, crucifixion? Crucifixion. I almost made up a new word. And, and he's, you know, he's going into this kind of theological jargon and you wonder, really? For such a practical problem? And what you find out, one of the keys to this passage, one of the most insightful verses in the Bible, really, is verse 14 when he says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And you kind of go, oh. See, he's not saying, no, 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 no you're, you're getting the rules wrong. You're, 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 you're not following the new Christian rules that we live by. He's saying, there's a gospel and your life's not flowing out of it. And sort of, let's back up a little bit once again and enter into this gospel and talk about how the gospel changes you and changes you from people who are nitpicking over who's in and who's, who's maybe not and we should be over here to people who live in a, in a dramatically different, more gracious uh, way. And so it turns out something that sounds jargony and theological is, is the most practical thing that he can apply to this very real situation. So let's talk about what is that gospel that he then brings alive in this passage. Basically, he's saying the gospel needs to apply to two things. It needs to deal with you on two levels. The first is it needs to deal with you in terms of your identity. And then secondly, it needs to deal with you in terms of your righteousness. So let's talk about identity. Who are you? That's the question of identity. Who are you? Who am I? Maybe you confidently come back with a response. I am a student. Uh, I am a thinker. I am a mom. You, just, you, you know, you list off these things. I am. Uh, I am a teacher. I am an artist. Uh, I am a social worker. I am a doctor. I am a dreamer. But I'm not the only one. Um, <laughs> what are you? What, how do you answer that question? Or maybe you find yourself you're in this other category when that question gets asked and you just kind of close up because you know that r- that question. Is, is piercing right into your emotional fragility in life right now is that you cannot firmly answer that question. It is your struggle. Who am I? Who am I? If you knew how many times I was up at night wrestling with issues related to, who am I? Where do you go for your identity? What is your identity? Who are you? Um, Margaret Thatcher, when she was uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, was visiting an old people's home and going room to room, shaking people's hands. And she got into one room, and it seemed clear that the person didn't, un, didn't realize that she was shaking hands with a very world-famous politician. And so Mrs. Thatcher said, um, uh, Ma'am, do you know who I am? And the woman said, Oh, no, dear, but I would ask the nurse if I, w- I were you. She usually knows. <laughs> so maybe, you know, maybe... I had to find a way to, to relate that joke to this message, and I just kind of crammed it in there. But maybe that's you. Maybe you don't know who you are, and you're wondering. And this passage says something very interesting, doesn't it? In verse 20, uh, I have been crucified with Christ, and 
I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's something that sounds strange. And basically, it does sound a little strange. It is a little strange, but it is something that when you become a Christian, you grab hold of. You, you, you become a little more and more comfortable talking in a way about your identity that maybe sounds a little bit strange, a little bit like someone you know who's a, a really extreme fan of a particular team, and they begin to morph into saying, we, <laughs> we won the pennant, you know? <laughs> You know, the, 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 the Giants fan that you know that says, you know, I've been following them all my life and finally we won the pennant. But we, we're kind of accepting of that to a certain degree. I'm sure it could go too far, but we're, we're kind of accepting of that. And that's a little bit like what it's like in the Christian churches. You become uh, okay talking about your identity as being closely linked to what happened in Jesus. And in fact, the most dramatic change in your life, if you become a Christian, is at the level, or can be, at the level of your identity and who you are and who you now are in Christ. I am something new now in Christ. Uh, St. Augustine, he was a, an intellectual who kind of sneered at the Christian faith. He was a little too cool with it and he'd make fun of it with his friends until he became a Christian. And his story, he's very open about it. his story involved... Really, a tra- one of the biggest things he talks about is the transition in how he handled himself um, in his sex life. And just a dialing back from this kind of free-for-all, this is where I find my identity, to now finding his identity in Christ. And so that there's this story that's been passed along about St. Augustine, you know, from like the 5th century, that after he became a Christian, he runs into this woman who he's been intimate with on the street. And she's, you know, she's, Augustine, hey! <laughs> How's it going, Augustine? And he's and he's just kind of, you know, kind of calm and doesn't bite on all of this flirtation. And then after they say hello, then he makes his way off, and she begins to wonder, did he even recognize me? And so she she calls out, Augustine, Augustine, it's me. And he says, Yes, I know, but it's not me. And and is it possible that there's that big of a transition that happens? when you become a Christian. Um, Oops. Table's a little closer than I thought there. One of the things about that story that I love is that Augustine didn't say what I think a lot of us would picture someone becoming a Christian would say. Not, Not, oh, it isn't me, but, well, you know, I would love to take you home tonight, but now I'm a Christian... And I'm following this new set of rules. Maybe I could tell you about what those rules are. It's kind of it's the Christian way, and I'm gonna, you know, that's why really I'm not going to do. I've cho- I've chosen now this set of life principles and rules. It's not that. It's not the rules. It's it's identity. It's deeper. And really, it's a little bit like I don't know if you remember in the '90s when I was in high school. Another high school story, I guess. Didn't realize there were two of them today. But there were these these, fo- these pictures that people were buying. It was a very hot item for a while, and maybe you now barely see them at garage sales anymore. But there were these pictures that if you stood in front of them, supposedly, and looked long enough, it would change. Did anybody, did anybody like, have difficulty <laughs> seeing those? <laughs> for the longest time, I, couldn't, I could not make my eyes do the magic that you were supposed to do to you know, see Michael Jordan instead of just a blob of colors and pixels. And so I would stand there and someone else would walk up and all of a sudden they'd immediately go, oh, cool. And I'd just look at them real grouchy because I hadn't seen it yet after a half hour. And, 
and eventually I did, I did, it did switch, and I saw, I began to see them once in a while, but I couldn't figure out what to do to make it happen. And it was incredibly amazing and surprising. The first, and then I wanted to go back and, and, and see it again because it was really a, a cool trick to suddenly just this 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 picture fundamentally changes and surprises you and pops out. It, it's spectacular. The new identity of a Christian is, in a sense, it's like God looking at you and viewing you differently suddenly. There's a change that happens, and now He looks at you. And it's spectacular, and it's surprising, and it'll surprise you if you believe it, if you know it. If you're a young woman and a guy asks you out, and um, and then he's late, he's like he, he doesn't show up, um, and you've you've never dated this guy before, maybe you met through Facebook or something, and he doesn't show up, and so you automatically have to interpret and view the situation a certain way. He's a jerk. <laughs> um, He's spineless. He didn't let me know. He doesn't, you know, he's he doesn't have any courage, um, and you kind of go on and on. But then, unfortunately, you begin to 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 view it and think about well, how can I not imagine what this says about me and about my desirability and relationships? And I'm never going to find someone. In an hour and a half or two later, you've listened to three Alison Krauss albums, and <laughs> and the doorbell rings, and. And it's him, and you answer the door and fling it open because you want to give him a piece of your mind. You've stewed on it long enough, you know exactly what you're going to say. And, and you let him have it. And, but he keeps trying to butt in and explain himself, and finally you're like, oh, I'll let him talk. Well, we'll see how good this is. What's he going to say? And then you're going to boot him out. And he's, he says, no, 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 really. Something happened, and I, it wasn't my fault. I was, I was abducted in a hostage situation at the bank, picking up cash on my way to, to the date. I'm serious. And you, and you have just two words. Get out. <laughs> no way. And he says, okay, I'll leave, but just turn, do me one thing. Turn on the TV. And so just to get him out of there, you do it. You turn it on, and there it is. Every channel, every station, hostage situation, and you're going, no way. And sure enough, there's his picture walking out of the bank with other hostages. <laughs> and in that moment, it changes. You, the whole, your view of the whole situation changes. There's something specific and real that happens, as soon as that happens, you look at the relationship differently. And then you go out on a date and you get married and you live happily ever after. <laughs> in, in our relationship with God, uh, something specific happens and God doesn't wait around for you to do it. So the story goes, God wants to view you differently. God desperately wants to, to not you see you one way is a sinner running away from him, not really giving two, you know, two cents about God, not caring, and running off. He wants to view you as a child welcomed home. And so what he does is he sends his own son, his own child. And there's this sort of imputation, this bringing in of what is going on between the father and the son. And that becomes now, even though it doesn't really belong, but God makes it belong now between what is happening between God and you and you become his child. That's what the gospel says. And that's what's going on on the cross. And that's how God now, your identity can be shaped most importantly by how God views you. And then what we, we have to understand another element about how the gospel needs to apply to our life. And the word comes up a lot in this passage um, justification or justify, and it's a word about righteousness. 
Um, so the gospel has to apply to your righteousness. It has to deal with your righteousness in order for your life to change. Um, it maybe sounds like a quaint and outplayed um, concept of caring about whether I'm righteous or not. I mean, doesn't that sound kind of played out and, and old school? Like, like anybody's walking around caring about how righteous they are. But let me ask you this. That a word that is, is right in the same kind of family of words, especially in the Greek um, and in the Bible, is justification or being justified. It's all connected, being righteous or being justified. How many of us are going about justifying ourselves in all sorts of different ways in our life? Um, you're trying to justify yourself before your parents. Um, finally, to feel like you're validated in who you are and what you've done in your life. You're trying to justify yourself by your art. You're trying to justify yourself by your work, by the, your field of study, by uh, uh, the phase of life you're in, whether or not you're respected or admired. You're trying to justify yourself. And what happens with all of us is that we find gaps in this justification. That we get to these points, even if we've plotted it all out and we really have a lot of things to measure ourselves by that, that kind of say, yes, you're, you're enough. There ends up being gaps in times where you're awake at night wishing you were more and wondering why does it seem like everybody else is measuring up and I'm not. We're trying to justify ourselves. It's, it's, the, the Bible talks about this in such a way that you get the sense that it's this universal human pursuit. But universal to it also is the gaps that, that come in. So you justify yourself by, I'm going to get that perfect state job because I value stability in life and I'm going to plot out my life that way and then furloughs hit. And who knew that people would think of, of state jobs as not being the stable place to work? Um, you you, you want to be a good parent, and you're justifying yourself by how good of a parent you are. And then you have a child who rebels and doesn't want to have anything to do with you. And it starts to fall apart. You justify yourself by uh, wanting to get pregnant, and then you find out after a couple of years of trying that you're infertile. And you put all of your, your justification of yourself in this issue. You justify yourself by being funny and then someone comes into your life and maybe sits at the cubicle right next to yours and is funnier than you, you know? <laughs> and now, you know, you're not, you don't feel justified. you got this crisis. Crisis. And, and Galatians 2.16 is very insightful in terms of how the Christian looks at this justification, this righteousness that we're all pursuing. Um, know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. And you know what you have going on here? You have all these ways that all of us go about pursuing our justification and many of them are what you would call the non-religious approaches or the irreligious approaches. They have nothing to do with God. Then you also have, surprise, surprise, a way of trying to justify yourself that is going on in this passage that is all about religion. So you're trying to justify yourself by how good you are religiously and how much you measure up religiously. And it turns out that that's just as much of a way of running away from God as all the other ways that you'd call non-religious. And so you have someone like, um, like Andy, who is portrayed in the book that we're following through this season. Consider Andy, who became a Christian five years ago. For the first three years, Andy woke up early every morning to pray and read his Bible for an hour. He faithfully sought out fellowship with other Christians and shared this new faith regularly. But for the past two years, Andy has struggled with guilt. 
He has grown distant from his Christian friends and has and lost his incentive to talk to others about Christ. In addition, Andy has begun to struggle with overeating. Occasionally, he will visit internet shopping sites and buy needless items online. He says it picks him up when he is down. In other words, Andy has slipped back into habits that dominated him before he became a Christian. Andy's friends say the problem uh, say that his problem started about the time when he missed his first quiet time. Therefore, Andy has redoubled his efforts to read his Bible and pray, but it just doesn't, doesn't seem the same. The Bible seems dull, and his mind wanders when he prays. What has gone wrong, he wonders. Most would conclude, like Andy's friends, that he has grown lazy and that he is not using the things God provided him to help, the Bible, prayer, fellowship, ministry, and service. And, and it's true. These, factors, uh, these are factors that have contributed to Andy's slow downward spiral, but Andy's problem is much deeper than that. In fact, his problem started long before he missed his first quiet time. What happened is that Andy lost sight of his need for the cross of Christ almost as soon as he became a Christian. If you had known Andy during the first three years of his Christian life when he was faithfully engaging in basic Christian disciplines, you would have met a confident and impatient man who rebuked others for struggling with their personal devotions or witnessing. Although Andy had come to Christ for salvation, acknowledging that he was lost and without hope except for the mercy of Christ, he quickly began to live as if progress in the Christian life was all up to him. Jesus got me in, and I have to do the rest, was Andy's functional identity. It's all up to me. For the first three years, he was proud because he was working hard to grow. He saw very little need for the cross of Christ, because he had already been forgiven. His sense of acceptance before God had quickly shifted from what Christ had done for him to what he was doing for Christ. Um, And what the author says is this. The sad fact is that Andy is typical of many uh, Christians who begin the Christian life with a clear understanding of their need for Christ but quickly lose sight of how central Christ must be throughout. Um, George Eldon Ladd talks about the history that's going on and the kind of community that Paul was writing to, especially around this issue of righteousness. And it sounds a lot like Andy. He says, The rabbis recognized an impulse towards good and an impulse towards evil. The righteous person was the one who nurtured the good impulse and restrained the evil impulse so that in the end that person's good deeds outweighed his or her evil deeds to accumulate a store of merit laid up for the hereafter. The credit and debit columns in this divine account book are balanced up every day. um, If the balance is on the credit side, a person is justified before God. If it is on the debit side, he or she is condemned. The things above all that go to balance the credit side of a person's account are the study of the Torah, almsgiving, and deeds of mercy. Now let me read one more thing. So you've got Andy. You've got the Jewish Christians of the first century saying, got to balance out this divine credit scale every day. And then you've got Uh, uh, the ancient church that Paul was speaking to. Now, this is Richard Loveless who writes about the spiritual life in his book in uh, in the 1970s. He wrote this very insightful thing that, that kind of opens this all up. Many see the need for justification, 
Although below the surface of their lives, they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. Many others have a rhetorical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification or you know, the, the good deeds of the Christian life. They rely on their sanctification for their justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity or their past experience of conversion or their recent religious performance or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. Few know enough to start each day with the thoroughgoing stand on what was Martin Luther, Martin Luther's platform, you know, the great reformer. You are accepted. Starting every day with this mantra. You are accepted. And then looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance. And I love this phrase, relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. If we're all trying to justify ourselves, it looks like we basically have two options. And they're personified in these quotes. We have two options for how we're going to go about our day. Are you going to wake up every day and wonder and chase after the the divine balance of the credit and debit system? Are you going to wake up each day and wonder, well, how am I going to do today? I've got to work this off somehow. And by the end of the day, kind of look at it and either beat yourself up with guilt and try again the next day or feel pretty good. I, I did all right today, but only to crash the next day. Or wake up each day with this mantra, you are accepted, and then relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. That's the choice. And whether you find yourself, uh, you've been embracing the Christian faith for a long, long time, or you're exploring it and you're dabbling and you're just thinking about this kind of relationship with God for the first time, it doesn't matter. It's really the same choice and it's going to be the same choice for all of your Christian life. How will you wake up each day? Divine balance of the credit scale or relaxing in that kind of trust that flows out into a life of gratitude. Will you pray with me? God of grace, sometimes we we hear things like that and we hear your own words that you said when you said, take my yoke upon you, come to me all who are weak and burdened and I will give you rest for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. We hear things like this. We hear these kind of promises of a kind of rest, of a kind of finally to relax in trust in you. And we don't even know how to take any kind of step towards it. And we're just kind of waiting for maybe the door to open so that it can become real for us. Will you open that door? We know you've already come to earth. You've already sent your son. You've already taken the burden and the load of our righteousness off of our shoulders. Will you now make it real for each and every one of us? Only you and your Holy Spirit can can make that a powerful reality that actually begins to change us. Will you please do that today? Will you begin to work in our hearts? And will you use the time now as we come to your table in a few minutes? Will you use that also to continue to do that and show us your grace? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.